the Lloyd's List Shipping Podcast. As we record this week's episode of the Lloyd's List Podcast, diplomats, scientists, lobbyists, activists, artists, the media, politicians and the business world at large are all starting to gather in Glasgow for COP26, which begins on October the 31st. Since 1995, the country is bound by the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, UNFCCC to you and me, have gathered for these conference of parties with fluctuating levels of hope and ambition. They've produced action plans, mandates and protocols, even as the hot air and acrimonious political breakdowns escalate. But at no point has shipping been front and centre at these gatherings, and despite a decent showing of industry types doing their best to hoist the maritime flag in Glasgow this time round, the reality is that shipping will not be foremost in the minds of those making the decisions. So why do cops matter to shipping? Well, the answer is that these meetings set the regulatory agenda that will directly inform how many stranded assets, bankruptcies and failure the shipping industry is going to find in its mid-term future if it doesn't manage to accelerate its decarbonisation efforts. But you don't have to take my word for it. As ever, I am here to offer the expert view of the industry's most significant issues, and this week I have a very special lineup of experts for you. In a bid to bring you the political perspective, no mere diplomat was going to be sufficient. So, I've gone straight to the top and asked a former head of state to join us this week. Yep, you heard that right. Felipe Calderon, the former president of Mexico, joins the podcast this week to offer a pretty unique insight on how the shipping industry is viewed by those at the top table during these negotiations. We also hear from one of the world's leading experts on COPs, Nick Maybe, an advisor to many politicians, a former senior advisor in the UK Prime Minister's Strategy Unit and chief executive of the leading environmental think tank E3G. But I started by talking to the one person who's been tasked to represent us all over the next few weeks at COP26, the shipping lead on the Climate Champions team, Catherine Palmer. I caught up with her as she was packing her bags for Glasgow and asked her why COP26 matters to shipping and what the difference between a good COP and a bad COP means for the maritime sector. This is really an action orientated COP. And I think if we look in the past, there's been lots around treaties and agreeing ambition, but this is the first real COP that's going to focus on action. And there's also going to be a real sense of um, solidarity. Everyone's in this together, and, and this is about action. So in my role as in the Climate Champions team, we um, work with non-state actors, and we're about mobilising commitment and action in the non-state um, actors. So that is not only organizations um, like shipping companies but also investors um, civil society cities regions all have a role to play and a significant role to play in achieving the Paris Agreement as well as as what the governments and, and member states are doing so what we'll be doing at copies like showcasing that non-state actor action demonstrating that the sector is aligned to the science. Um, it's it's making its own commitments and taking action. But actually, if governments can um, step up with increased ambition and commitment for shipping as well, then I think together we can do so much more quicker. 
So what I would like to see, as well as showcasing the great work that the partners I'm working with are already doing, um, is to ensure that we can get that increased ambition um, for from countries for a zero target by 2050 for shipping, so we actually get some clear direction of travel and get clarity on that, because I think getting that signal is really going to help reduce some of the uncertainties that the industry is seeing when they're trying to make business decisions um, to take action. And, and that's key. The, the, the consequences of COP are important for shipping because, as you say, this is the discussion that informs the government policy that then informs their ability to discuss these things in more granular detail when it gets filtered down into the shipping conversations. And exactly. exactly. directly after COP, we've got MEPC, yeah. so we're going to see the results there. Exactly. So, so you know, if we've got world leaders on the stage sort of saying, making commitments of net zero by 2050 or, or zero um, emissions on a, a life cycle basis by 2050 for shipping... Um, and making commitments to the transition being um, just and, and fair, um, then the first real test of that is going to be a week or so later um, as we go into MEPC 77. So it's like, if we're going to make these announcements at COP, we need to follow through and actually test that in, in the IMO negotiations because everyone agrees that, you know, Shipping needs it just needs to be done under the under the auspices of the IMO. Um, this isn't about it not happening happening somewhere else rather mm. than the IMO, but it's about setting that sending that signal and and setting, giving that clear direction of travel. Because once you get that, you you start to reduce the uncertainty, and then you know we've got a clear direction. The shipping industry, as with every other industry, is heading in that trajectory, and then you can start to unlock. Some of the access to investment and, and finance, and it, it just sort of will will send a, a real clear signal. And and that's the thing that's often missed when the IMO comes in for criticism. I think that you know, the glacial pace of change is is down to the IMO as a, a singular body. The, the IMO is nothing more than the collective will of its member states, but its member states are not going to resolve climate change within the walls of Albert and Bankton. It takes meetings like this at COP to inform the governments that will allow those conversations to happen yeah. in, in, in IMO. And that's why it is so Well, if we look at, at how quickly things happened um, after um, Paris, mm. you know, so so we had um, COP uh, in Paris, we got came out with the Paris Agreement, then that momentum flowed through into IMO because in that spirit of collaboration that everyone had just left Paris with came into the IMO walls and that spirit of collaboration and working together was there, and coming up with that initial strategy was very quick. It's just now that you know, and, and it's around that level of ambition in that strategy. You know, it needed to leave the door open for one point five um, temperature rise, and not just be said at two. And I think the wording sort of says that, but because it says at least fifty percent by twenty fifty. You know, and full decarbonisation have shown to be possible. Mm. The industry is still fifty percent. It's only fifty percent, rather than the really understanding the nuances in the language that at least yes. and full decarbonisation have shown to be possible. They just focus on the fifty percent, 
And and I think um, you know there's a, a growing coalition of, of states now wanting to raise that ambition to be zero greenhouse gas emissions on a life cycle basis by mm. 2050. Yeah, if you if you look at the papers being submitted to MEPC and the growing as you say, coalition of countries. I mean, we calculated a few weeks ago, it's, it's around 45 states that have aligned themselves to papers. I suspect that's probably going to increase in the run-up. One of the sort of the key triggers as to how much of an increase we're going to see is COP. So, I mean, with that in mind, what does a good COP look like? What does a bad COP look like, as far as you're concerned? Um, well, I think a good COP is, is getting this um, signal from countries that they are, um, and, and and a diverse and inclusive group of countries, you know. So that so we want to make sure that this message is coming not only from developed countries but also um, less developed countries and, and small island developing states. So so to to show that sense of um, we're together on this, and and also you know in that increased ambition from from the countries to to. To make sure that, that, you know, a just and equitable transition is front and center mm. of, of this, because again, that is, is bringing, that is solidarity and bringing everyone together. So, so that's good. Um, and, and I think what also makes it good is being able to showcase the action and commitment that the private sector is already taking. And I think we, we see that with the, the compendium kind of inventory report that supports the getting to zero call to action of all those, you know, 200 signatures saying what it is they're actually doing, whether it's around their own targets, whether it's around their own investment in R&D, whether it's around their own commitment to order zero emission ready vessels. And I think being able to showcase, you know, the, the, the private sector is taking action we are aligned to science, and and if governments can step up with an enabling policy environment and a clear direction of travel, then we can achieve so much more at a lot quicker pace. So that to me is a, a kind of good outcome. Um, you know, uh, otherwise it will we'll have the same outcome, but without the government. Ambition, you know, we will still be showcasing what the non-state actors are doing. We'll still be having dialogue um, on on the platforms and the events around uh, resilience and a just transition, and and actually sort of saying that if countries want to achieve their own net zero targets, they can't do that without decarbonising transport. And you know, decarbonising transport includes decarbonising shipping. Um, so, so we want to just make sure that you know countries realise that um, to achieve their own NDCs, they they need to include shipping. Wonderful, um, Catherine Palmer. Thank you very much for joining Lloyd's podcast again, and good luck in Glasgow. Thank you very much. One reason cops matter is that some of them do, in fact, make a difference. Despite rules on consensus, meaning that the pace is set by the least willing. The agreement in Paris committed all parties, rich and poor, to keep the rise in the Earth's temperature since the mid-19th century well below 2 degrees centigrade. Glasgow is going to bring fresh national pledges promising increased efforts towards the Paris temperature targets. 
although they're unlikely to be ambitious enough to make meeting those goals very likely. The main reason that the UNFCCC and COP processes matter is that the science, diplomacy, activism and public opinion that support it make up the best mechanism the world currently has to help it come to terms with a fundamental truth, that drastic change to our global systems, including the system of maritime trade, is now urgent. Nick Maybe has been a key advisor behind the scenes at most of the recent COPs. He explains why these discussions have a direct influence on business decisions. Yeah. Well, people often look at UN conferences and think they're just a place where diplomacy happens and, and long negotiations, and they are. But more fundamentally than that, they're where the world sets its direction of ambition on climate change. And not everything is done through the COP. But it acts, we often say, as the keystone of an arch, where the rest of the arch are places like the IMF or the World Bank or the WTO. So the rest of the global system and the economy keys off the UNFCCC, as it's called, which is why it makes it so important. So when I started, um, my first COP was Kyoto in 1997. Business as usual was five to six degrees by 2100, which would be completely devastating. Um, and we didn't make a lot of progress in targets in Kyoto, but actually what happened after Kyoto was a huge rise in patents in clean tech. And that laid the foundations for the future evolution. We rolled forward 10, nearly 10 years into Copenhagen in 2009, seen as a failure, it was a failure diplomatically, but that started the renewables revolution driven by European, half a trillion in European subsidies, stimulating a manufacturing base in China that radically dropped the cost of renewables. So that by the time we went into Paris in uh, 2015, we had a very different place, very different perception. Um, we agreed a global treaty, but even more importantly, coming out of Paris, we saw, again, renewables and particularly electric vehicles dropping in price so that they are now kind of as cheap as we expected them to be in 15, 20 years' time. Um, as well, it sparked a huge revolution in the financial system in reporting, but also, again, at the World Bank, at the IMF, in the world's central banks, as the financial industry um, realised it needed to grip the risks of climate change and the climate transition if it was going to make good investment decisions. So if you look across that timeline, the role of COP, which has reduced business as usual temperature rises from 6 degrees in 1997 to now in the mid-2s, 2.4, 2.7, potentially as low as 2 degrees now nearly 85% of the global economy has got a net zero target. Um, that's what it's really done, because it's set that direction. And that's the direction of travel, which the shipping industry has got to live with. And Glasgow is going to accelerate that again and turn it into a whole set of new contexts, which everybody has to work within. So can you give us your view in terms of what we think we're going to see coming out of COP in terms of tangible directional policy almost? There's going to be a huge range of policies, but the, the big ones will be, firstly, we'll complete the Paris regime, so all the rules on transparency and integrity will be written, particularly on areas like emissions trading, so that a ton is a ton is a ton everywhere, and that everything people do is measured against a very clear yardstick. We'll get more ambition from countries, but also in sectors like coal, methane reductions, um, phasing out internal combustion engines, will be some big diplomatic announcements. And we hope to see a further process coming out of COP to tighten up targets even more in the next couple of years because we're not doing enough right now. And that will be really important because it will shape the recovery 
funding and investment we're going to see in 2022-23 as the world, the majority world comes out of COVID and starts to say, where are we investing uh, into the future? All of that investment is going to align with what's agreed at Glasgow. And that's massively important. It's particularly important for shipping because the long-term investment horizon of an industry that invests in assets that last 20 years has to be certain. And you know, that, that confidence in investment, that's really what I think the industry is looking for. Do you think they're going to have that confidence? I think they will have quite a lot of confidence, but it kind of depends what they say to governments. At the moment, most industries in the past kept on asking for, in a sense, less confidence, please do less. Mm. I think now most countries, most economies, most companies, most investors have set net zero targets. The main thing is to say, no, we really don't want to know what you mean. It's fine. So what does it mean for the next 10 years, 20 years in terms of what you need from your supply chain, what you need from your ports, what you need from your fuels? Because the biggest risk is you making choices and then being out of the money because the world moves faster. Because the one lesson from history of climate change, we've always moved faster than people thought was credible because technology is better than you think and money moves faster than you think. So it's not the politics that are leading, it's the economy that's leading. And that's what will put people out of the money. So don't look for a global carbon price to get you. Look for the competitors and the circular economy and the change in supply chains and purchases from large companies. That's what's going to be your risk, not some hypothetical global regulation. The key objective of these political summits is to secure increased ambition from states while also mobilising finance and increasing their scope of collaboration. But ultimately, it's the governments that are the ones at the negotiating table, and they're considering everything from macroeconomic factors to their own re-election in these decisions. So it's fair to say that shipping is not exactly front and centre in their minds as they formulate their political positions. Understanding how states consider lower-profile industries like shipping is key to positioning the industry's interests and making our voice heard in the right places. So when I bumped into the former president of Mexico this week, as one does, I thought it only right and proper that I should take the opportunity to invite him onto the podcast for a view on how shipping should be positioning itself at Glasgow. Uh, delighted to say we uh, have a former president, no less, on the Lawyers List podcast this week, um, Felipe Calderon, former president of Mexico. Welcome to the Lawyers List podcast. Thank you. Now, we've been talking about the run-up to COP, um, which is an important event globally, but for shipping, it's a litmus test, I guess, of the political will to change. Now, as a former head of state who has been at the heart of such negotiations over many years, what message can you give the shipping industry in terms of what it needs to do to strike a more ambitious stance in terms of decarbonisation? I believe that uh, the maritime sector, as any other economic sector, needs not only honest motives, which is really important, but clear economic incentives to do the right thing. And I believe that uh, the importance of uh, Glasgow on the COP26 is more related with the new commitments and regulations that could have an impact and must have an impact in the entire economy in the world. Mm. Otherwise, uh, it's going to be impossible to advance upon the goodwill or on voluntary basis from everyone. It is important to have a common ground, a level field, and uh, the only way to do that is to establish a new global framework in which include 
clear economic incentives. In my opinion, the most important economic incentives is pricing carbon through different modalities. It could be taxing, it could be a uh, cap and trade system, it could be other kind of incentives. But we need some kind of framework, some, a clear idea. Okay. The other idea is, uh, oh, to be honest, uh, I know that most of the people involved and committed tackling climate change are motivated by ideals and principles, but being very pragmatical, what mobilizes people and resources among governments and business leaders is beyond that. And it's about uh, uh, the purposes. And what I found is we can mobilize and take or push to take that decisions not only based upon the ideals and principles. I, I, I'd rather to have that situation, but what we have is political leaders looking for votes and looking for governments and businessmen looking for profits. Mm. And the, the big or the good news is now we can find those motives as well in order to take decisions. And I believe if we are able to put the right economic framework, the right economic incentives, the right regulatory uh, laws and rules, it is possible to get a successful battling on climate change, but at the same time, a successful economic growth. Mm -hmm. And what the people in government or in the uh, companies are looking is for economic success, for economic growth. And in the case of the government, for job creation, poverty alleviation, economic growth. And that is possible if we foster the new climate economy, as we used to call it. And as you've said before, it's more inspiring to talk about the hope of a new economic system rather than the fear of what the consequences will be Definitely. if we don't act. In my experience, and I need to admit a political experience, uh, so fears don't mobilize people and don't take action. Fears, actually, most of the time, fears paralyze people. And that is maybe what is happening. We have like a 25 years talking about the horrors of the... Uh, of uh, consequences of climate change, which are completely evident. Mm. But we are not mobilizing too much people around that, at least not too much government and too much businessmen. So in, if instead of that, or on top of that, we talk about the hope and the future and the new economy and the benefits coming from taking action mm. could be different. So uh, hopes mobilize much more than fears. And we need to change the way in which we are trying to persuade the people and the governments and the businessmen for taking action, mobilized from the fears to the hopes from the, not talking about the apocalypse or uh, the disaster, but talking about the, the promised land of being responsible because it's not only carbon emission reduction, it's also economic growth, yeah. which is what the people most is looking for. And finally, the as, as, a, as a former head of state, you'll understand that you, know, you have many different uh, sectors of an economy asking for change and demanding certain things. We're here with the great and the good of the shipping industry. Uh, but I think the industry has struggled in the past to speak with a cohesive voice. I wonder if perhaps you could uh, talk just very briefly about what, it, what messages cut through the political noise when you're, when you're having these discussions. How can an industry better talk to the politicians in a way that well, it is Well, it is important to first to understand that, to be honest, most of the governments 
are not aware about the importance of the sector, are not aware about the size of the market, are not aware about the challenges and opportunities of this industry in particular. So it is important to connect and make a very strong campaign for information and awareness among governments. Mm. Uh, the second is to, uh, to help the governments to take the right regulations, what could be the fair legislation that is needed. Mm. Or somebody was talking about the, the, the very well-designed carbon pricing. What could be that very well-designed? Maybe the government have not or to mobilize public resources and budgets in order to establish the infrastructure that is needed to increase imports or uh, retrofitting them, I don't know, but uh, the government needs that kind of uh, close capture, that kind of attention from the industry. And the good news is uh, institutions like IMO are exceptional. Not too many industries are managed uh, with a regulatory framework globally. So uh, the industry, uh, maritime industry, needs to take advantage of uh, the institutions, the associations, and the regulatory framework, and at the same time to work together with the governments in order to get better business and at the same time better work. Wonderful. Felipe Calderon, thank, thank you for joining you. the Luis's podcast. Thank you. And that's it for this week. We will, of course, be back next week with even more insight and analysis, and you never know, maybe even another world leader or two. What I can promise is that Lloyd's List will be bringing you the industry's most thorough coverage of COP, followed by our analysis, as we head into MEPC 77 next month. Look out on Lloyd'sList.com for regular updates live from Glasgow, and no doubt more to come via the podcast itself. For now, though, thank you for listening, and have a good week. 